Welcome to School of Movies. Joker. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by if you smile. To your fear and sorrow, smile, and maybe tomorrow you'll find that life is still worthwhile. If you just this is a truly polarizing movie. I've seen some people say it's the best film they've witnessed in years. Perfect script. Perfect astonishing performances just couldn't be better and on the other hand i've seen people say it's empty and meaningless and these are people i respect from all corners and i've seen people praise phoenix's performance and i've seen people say his performance was great but he just didn't have a great film to perform in it's dividing audiences and it's dividing critics and we don't like dividing people we like uniting them but the way this film plays out, we decided against doing a show wherein people rave about the Joker while we come at it a lot more critically. I suspect that would feel uncomfortable rather than winding up fun, diffuse in its focus rather than on point, for some reasons that will become clearer as we go on. So I will say this, if you loved Joker, there are plenty of review outlets who will sing its praises to the high heavens. The option is there to balance those with ours. But most importantly, it is absolutely fine to love Joker. Most of our beef lies with Todd Phillips and his creative decisions, not the audiences who loved those creative decisions. All that said, listen on. This one is going to require an alternate format to the one we usually take. There is a lot of incident in this film, but thematic cohesion is going to be difficult, so I have to read out the synopsis scenario by scenario, and we can elaborate on details as we go rather than trying to briefly summarize the whole film and then have us getting stuck in the weeds of having to go back and forth between incidents after the fact. So I'm, I'm calling this the hopscotch approach. Bit of synopsis, bit of discussion, more synopsis, yeah? Okay. Uh, if you've not seen the film yet, you may want to wait until the end of this one. It will be fully revelatory in terms of plot, but I wouldn't classify this as spoiling the film. If anything, it might help to anchor your perspective. <laughs> we begin with a man named Arthur Fleck. He has a job at a Gotham City Municipal Service, which subcontracts out clowns. He cries into a mirror and forces his face into a smile with his fingers, then goes to the street where he holds up a sign for a record store that's going out of business. He dances. The sign is stolen and broken by ruffians. Arthur sprints after them and is beaten up in an alley. It is 1981, and Gotham City, which looks like New York in 1976, is in the grip of a garbage strike. I'll start right off that uh, a lot of a lot of people are praising Joaquin Phoenix's performance in this, and I would put it down to two things: uh, physicality, 
because he puts a lot of himself into it physically. He malnourished himself on purpose, which is what all great method actors do. They fuck themselves up physically. Part of why the Academy always applauds it so much. If you suffer for your art, you must be a really good actor. Kind of like uh, Dwight Schrute crawling across hot coals rather than running across them. Dwight, Dwight, oh, Dwight, Dwight, Dwight keep moving. Give me the job! I'm not going to give it to you. Why don't you go, Michael? Because I already did. Remember? I burned my foot on the George Foreman grill. That is not the same at all. And uh, he moves about a lot. He perambulates. He has a peculiar manner of walking and physically hunches himself over and makes himself smaller and makes it feel like he's scared by the world, but then also smiles at the world and tries to connect and gets hit for it. Mm. I would say there's a very definite distinction between his dancing which usually comes at moments when he is trying to express himself. Mm -hmm. Usually when he's alone, or at least feeling vaguely protected. Generally confined to one spot. It's not dancing that involves a lot of travelling. It's sort of very flowing motions that sort of keep him in one place, but seem to make him very happy is not quite the right word, but he seems to feel more free when that's happening. By very sharp contrast, when he's actually moving through the world, either running or walking, he seems very awkward and out of place and like he's not happy being in that environment. He's not comfortable in that environment at all. The other aspect of his performance that I think everyone's responding very well to is the intensity. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Arthur goes to see his therapist. She asks to see his journal, which he's been using to log jokes in. It is full of poorly spelled scribble about how unhappy he is. We see that he was previously interred in a mental institution where he headbutted the glass viewing window to his cell. Uh, though they don't explore that. Uh, not much, although the implications that come later on when we find out what happened with his mother, it, he had to go somewhere. Yeah. It is said that he's on seven kinds of medication, but they don't seem to be doing much. I have an observation about this woman. It's never made entirely clear what her role is. She's referred to in various articles about the film as a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I don't think she is. I think she's a social, a social worker. worker. Yeah. She's in an office. It's piled up with papers. She's underfunded. Um, she's got a badge that says something like Gotham City Department of Health or mm. something like that. So there may be a little bit of overlap, but her primary concerns and focus seem to be, is he working? Is he eating? Is he staying out of trouble? Hence That's, him saying, all you ask me about is my job. Exactly. Those are social workers' concerns. Those are not a counsellor's concerns. They're not a psychotherapist's concerns. And she's certainly not a psychiatrist because otherwise she wouldn't need to refer him to his doctor for his medication. Psychiatrists can prescribe. Okay. This is your wheelhouse, of course. Mm. Arthur goes home to his ageing mother, Penny. She is gentle and frail and fixated on sending letters to billionaire Thomas Wayne, which are never responded to. She used to work for him and needs his help since they have very little money. It is noteworthy that there are about 
two minutes of this film when Arthur is not seen smoking a cigarette. It, it does two things. One, it, it puts you in the past when that was a thing that everyone did. And two, it relates to tensions all the time because mm-hmm. people smoke to relieve those tensions, which suggests that there's always this constant building tension being vainly kept at bay with nicotine. Mm, indeed. It's not a wonderful piece of filmmaking, but it's there and I'm going to interpret that. Arthur suffers from a rare condition which causes him to laugh uncontrollably, seemingly when he is very nervous. It's nothing to do with finding things funny, but it puts him in many awkward predicaments. He freaks out a mother on a bus who seems incredulous and irate. I I mentioned to you earlier, and I'll talk about this more in a bit, that there are repeated occurrences of black women who are expected to do the emotional labour for Arthur. And I'd forgotten about this one, but this is another one. Mm -hmm. He gives her the card, and yes, it's a way of showing this is what he has and sort of narratively doing that, but she is another woman who is expected to carry the weight of his unusual affect. Mm. I did feel sorry for him at that point, the, the idea of him being totally helpless and uncontrollably laughing and having to hand over this crumpled card he's handed over, which says on it, please give this card back, and she doesn't. Mm. No, I noticed that as well. No, she doesn't. And it's like, fuck, do you think I'm made of cards that mm. say about my condition? And that them? is a common thing that many people who can't necessarily communicate particularly well verbally will do they'll carry cards with them to say you know this is what i've got please be patient here are things that you could do that would help me um and that's that's great but it seems like there's a lot of focus on the condition that makes him laugh and he's got several things there's going on loads going on there's so much and in they're there. not they're not separated out but again i will talk about that in a bit Arthur watches the Murray Franklin chat show on TV and fantasizes about being in the audience, getting attention for shouting out, getting a spotlight and being invited on as a guest. He admits that his mother always just wanted him to be happy. She calls him happy occasionally in the film and that he just wants to make people happy. Everyone applauds him for him being such a nice guy and he gets to hug Murray, who in a fatherly way greatly approves of him for brightening up his day. All of this is just a deluded fantasy. It reminded me of uh, Requiem for a Dream, the way uh, Ellen Burstyn fantasizes about being on a game show all the time. Obviously, this film is a mashup of The King of Comedy and Taxi Driver, both by Martin Scorsese. You'll have heard this from everyone else already. We sat down and watched both of these films. I'd seen Taxi Driver before. Had you seen either I'd, of them? I'd seen Taxi Driver, but a long time ago. Right. So I've never seen King of Comedy. We didn't love those Scorsese films, but they are very much portraits of lonely men in New York City in the mid-70s and early 80s. Very much of their time which makes this feel weirdly out of time, with social anachronisms that only apply to today's world and not back then. Joker is kind of what would happen if you showed a frat boy those two films now and asked him to explain them to you. It's interesting for me because I keep seeing people saying, oh my God, it's so brilliant. It's got echoes of the King of Comedy and it's it's got echoes of Taxi Driver and it, that, that makes it so wonderful. And Interesting. Are... When uh, episode seven did that, you called it just a straight up copy of well, Star Wars. This is, these are the very things that really, really left me utterly cold because those two films leave me utterly cold as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the same reasons, I was left very cold by Joker. Whereas episode seven made us feel warm. Arthur meets Sophie, played by Zazie Beetz, a single mother who lives in his building and smiles at him in the escalator to lower the tension. He conducts an ongoing relationship with her, though we never see the pair of them talk about anything. 
I never fell for this one. No, me either. It, I think the uh, the first nah was the walking into the apartment and kissing her, to which she responds. She was like, oh, yes, kiss me, you strange man. Yeah, and the second nah was in the hospital because she was not acting like somebody who's had precisely one conversation with this person mm. in her life. Arthur goes to watch a stand-up comedy act in a club, taking notes of how best to comport himself in his act. He notes down that one of the things about living with a mental illness is that people would rather you act like you don't. That felt That's very genuine. accurate. Yeah, no, that, that does feel very genuine and very heartfelt. And it's, it's, again, this is one of the elements that makes it more complex than simply this is a shit portrayal of people who live with mental illnesses. Um, because it's it's more nuanced than that. There are facets of what was clearly intended and what Phoenix does, which are actually pretty good in terms of the uh, the sense of feeling intimidated and feeling under attack all the time and having to find ways to pass that and still exist in a world that you ultimately can't get away from 24-7 and have to exist in and how difficult that can be to mask behaviours and traits that make other people uncomfortable, especially when, in his case, he physically can't because that laugh bursts out of him in ways that he can't control. But there are things going on with this character that don't add up in the sense that there are behaviours that could be linked to brain injury there are behaviors because we find out later on that he's been beaten and suffered injuries to his head there's uh, elements that could be down to neurological conditions that he's had since birth i thought at one point they might be hinting at developmental disorder as well he seems extremely childlike in the fantasy where he's in the audience with murray Mm. Um, but then when it became apparent that that was the only time he really behaves that childlike um, then it seemed more like he was just giving his inner child some room to play there. So that's fair enough. But so much of this is not necessarily down to mental illness, which is a different thing from brain injury and is a different thing from developmental disorder and, and neurological conditions. And it felt at times like this was a, uh, a portrayal that was being done from the outside in, that it was a grab bag of peculiar behaviours that would look to the audience like mental illness, but there doesn't seem to be any real way of getting across what it feels like to be inside that. And that was what kind of bothered me about Phoenix's performance. It all seemed very intense and very uh, dedicated, but very superficial. There there didn't seem to be much in the way of, this is how I feel because this is how the character feels and then the behaviours come out of that so that there's a a kind of a through line between here's the thought, here's the motivation, Mm. here's the driver. Because this is the thing... It was more just behaviour and then... It says on here, head injury. Exactly. Does it look weird? But the but the two and two don't always add up properly. But the thing is, when somebody ha- whether somebody has a quote unquote healthy brain, or whether they have a mental illness, or whether they are neurotypical, or whether they're not, the things that their brain prompts them to do 
make sense to them. And I think this is one of the reasons I keep coming back to this whenever we talk about films that are specifically portraying um, a, a psychological viewpoint of a character. If that psychology doesn't make clear sense from inside out, it's going to piss me off. Because it feels like that person's just gone, well, that looks weird, must be mental illness. <laughs> Arthur has given a revolver by his co-worker, Randall, for protection against ruffians stealing his sign. He dances for the second time, this time in his apartment, with the revolver in hand. It accidentally goes off, scaring his mother. Undaunted by the horrific power of the firearm in his possession, he brings it to work with him, where he dances, for the third time, at a children's hospital. The gun falls out of his pocket and he is fired over the phone. He smashes the phone booth with his forehead. And I think it's it's worth noting that up to this point, I was actually kind of with it. I wasn't, like, totally loving the film, but I could understand why the people who'd raved about it had really liked it. I could see what the connection points might be. Phillips was doing a pretty good job of introducing the characters and, and creating a world that they inhabited that felt believable. I kind of got the impression before that there was literally no connection with the, the DC universe proper at all. So when they started talking about Gotham and Wayne and things like that, I was actually taken a bit by surprise. And I thought that kind of early on in the film, that's woven in relatively well. <laughs> on the way home on the shittiest train in the world, Arthur meets a trio of feral Wall Street bankers. They are drunk and hitting on the only other passenger, who is female. She leaves as Arthur starts laughing uncontrollably. The 1% bandits close in around him, singing... Send in the clowns. Send in the clowns word for word, and start to kick the shit out of Arthur, who defends himself with the gun, shooting the first two, then pursuing the third and shooting him in the back. And this was the scene that made me go, oh, right. This was the first step down into, I'm really not going to like the rest of this, am I? Panicking over the multiple murder of three well-connected men conducted by a clown on a train where... There surely aren't that many clowns in Gotham, all of which puts the finger of blame squarely on the one clown who was fired that night because he brought a gun to a children's hospital for no reason and was fired. For no reason and is fired. Arthur sprints for a second time down the street, looking for all the world like the guiltiest clown ever. He discards the gun, which is never followed up on, despite the fact that the bullets would match those of the victims and his prints are all over it and he would have his prints on record due to his previous incarceration. He winds up in a filthy toilet, his panic subsides, and for the fourth time, he dances. Relaxed, elated, seemingly proud of the crime he got away with, empowered by the slaughter of his oppressors. He marches straight home, knocks on Sophie's door, and they kiss. Yeah. Entitled, I did this, I'm now a hero, here's my prize. I struck back against a cruel world. Yeah, and it is, of course, a fantasy, but still... <laughs> On reflection, this scene comes off like Clockwork Orange. These young white dudes seem to be really into music and singing it while hurting people. So I suppose this is kind of followed up on at the end when he starts singing to himself and then hurts someone. So they helped give him that horrible sadistic idea. Arthur goes from 0 to 60 remarkably fast. Well, yeah, he goes from, oh shit, oh god, no, oh no, no, to... 
oh my god, I killed them and it's fucking fantastic. Yeah, like that he killed them, even that he was so pumped up by adrenaline that he would chase after the third guy. All of that I could kind of go with, but I would have thought that a better response would be to then be moderately horrified by what he'd done. Well, this is why he's waves hand at the word crazy and that mean that that all makes sense because he's crazy Mm. yeah but you're then going down the argument of well you know people who shoot people clearly mentally ill and that's why that happens Anyway, this triple murder is interpreted by Gotham citizens as a vigilante act. Many people dress as clowns inspired by this unknown clown as they rage against the way the city is run. This relates to the real-world story of Bernie Getz. Uh, Bob and Chris Chipman mentioned this Mm -hmm. on uh, uh, Chris's podcast. That's Chipman Brothers Tangent Podcast, episode 38. I'm supporting both Chris and Bob on Patreon. They're good guys. You should listen. Really good episode, by the way. I recommend it. Um, This is something I didn't know about. Uh, It's a real-life Jewish man who shot and wounded several black youths on the subway in New York, 1984. Gets surrendered to the police nine days later and was charged with attempted murder, assault, reckless endangerment, and several firearms offences. Initial support and public opinion turned against Getz due to racist statements and the N-word and anti-Spanish slur beginning with S. And damaging details of the incident that later surfaced. Despite this, a jury found him not guilty of all charges except for one count of carrying an unlicensed firearm for which he served eight months of a one-year sentence. In 1996, one of the men who had been left paraplegic and brain damaged as a result of his injuries obtained a civil judgment of $43 million against Getz. The incident sparked a nationwide debate on race and crime in major cities, the legal limits of self-defense, and the extent to which the citizenry could rely on the police to secure their safety. Getz dubbed... The subway vigilante by the New York press came to symbolise New Yorkers' frustrations with the high crime rates of the 1980s. He was both praised and vilified in the media and public opinion. The incident has also been cited as a contributing factor to the groundswell movement against urban crime and disorder and the successful National Rifle Association campaigns to loosen restrictions on the concealed carry of firearms. They were, uh, one of the representatives uh, who was handling this uh, wanted there to be armed militia groups in New York to uh, deal with the crime citizens armed to the teeth and ready to shoot anyone on sight you know the foot clan taking them 35 years but yeah you know you you know the foot clan in the uh, ninja turtles movie from 1990 that came from this Mm. yeah it's a deadly serious and nuanced real life scenario which needed to be not heavily lifted from to serve a plot that switched black youths for feral one percent bankers their position of social standing in real life statistically points towards quite different crimes, which they historically get away with and bribe their way out of. And I wish that Joker as a film had an interest in establishing those crimes rather than maintaining this toilet roll telescope viewpoint on the world. Instead, the insane clown posse of angry Gothamites seems like a mishmash of anonymous, Occupy Wall Street, Antifa, and a bunch of other ripped from the contemporary headlines, socially incendiary groups, none of which feel like they belong in a proxy New York of 1981, and none of which seem like they would actually just put on clown masks and loot, and that's it. Mm, yeah. Um, which is what this results in. You know what groups of booted thugs you'd be more likely to get in the early 80s? Punks? Yeah, neo-Nazis. Yeah, skinheads. 
But this is not a film where they're going to make Nazis look bad. <laughs> Arthur is lightly investigated by two cops. They cannot get a bead on this obviously guilty man. It's like the mask. Only that guy was, like, hounding Stanley the whole time and mm. knew that he did it. I have to say, these two characters are utterly wasted. You've got a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern right there. Yeah, you have. And one of them could have been Eckhart, sir. Oh, oh my God. God. Commissioner Gordon goes to a Gotham deli. Let me get... What, oh, God. What is... What's the roast beef with provolone and extra onions? Oh, uh, yeah, we call that the Eckhart, sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it will never not be fucking funny. So Arthur is told that his therapy sessions or social worker sessions and his seven kinds of medication have been cut off because the city can no longer afford them. He rages against his therapist and says that she never listens to him and that all he has are negative thoughts. And she has nothing to say in response aside from that nobody cares about him and nobody cares about her. There's a complete lack of connection between these two, which I get is kind of the point. It sort of has to be because for him to go the road he does, you can't really afford to have anybody connect with him because then he's yeah. he's shutting himself off from them. He needs to have a bad therapist. Yeah. But... Like I said, if she's a social worker, he doesn't really have a therapist at all. But that's the thing. He's treating her as a therapist. Yeah. He's going, like, it is positioned as he's there for help with his condition. Mm. Yeah. And the average person watching, they never go wouldn't into the difference between the two, and the average person wouldn't distinguish. I can't even distinguish. I'm married to a counsellor. Now no longer an employed clown, Arthur plays at the comedy club where he laughs uncontrollably, overcome with nervousness. We get a few lines from his act, which begins with silence from the audience, but they eventually warm up. Sophie sits at the back watching. He basically kind of opens up about uh, his life. He makes himself vulnerable, though we don't see him go into depth. We find out later that the audience laughing was his delusion. They remained silent. Arthur's embarrassing non-comedy routine briefly pouring out his heart to a bemused audience is aired on the Murray Franklin show where Murray makes fun of his lack of professionalism declaring, look at this joker, says Robert De Niro. I think one of the only characters that I like, I didn't like him at all, but eventually in the uh, film I was like, there is some kind of human being in there and I would really have liked to get to know him a lot more. There is, but... The He's a prick... Yeah. But there's something there. But the way he delivers his uh, perspective is, it seems deliberately antagonistic for the specific purpose of winding Arthur up further. Yeah. Also, uh, Bob pointed out that uh, this whole uh, him going viral on this, that couldn't happen no. in 1981. No, it really couldn't. It really couldn't. People couldn't even tape him off the TV and hand the videotapes around. If they didn't see it live or catch it on one of the news shows later on, it didn't happen. This bit angers Arthur, but he is later called and asked to guest on Murray's show as the audience liked that bit. Although, from the sounds of it, it was just Murray going, oh, uh, we got a bit of a response to that. I could bring this guy on and embarrass him further. Mm. But again, folding that in with the how could this go viral, how could you get a response from the audience? <laughs> The phone lines are lighting up. They are they are knocking on the door, asking for you to come back again. There are crowds in Gotham City outside my studio. 
saying, we love that bit where that guy laughed uncontrollably at the comedy club and everyone just cringed. Because that's what everyone loved in 1981. Cringe humour. I'll need some guys. Not these guys, because, well, they're kind of dead. <laughs> Thomas Wayne, remember him, the guy that... Uh, Arthur's mother keeps mailing, is running for mayor. He's asked in an interview on TV what he thinks of this clown vigilante. Uh, he says people who wear masks are stupid, and to those who have made something of themselves, poor people will always be clowns. Also, please vote for him in the next election. Now, I said to you, there's no fucking way a politician would say that shit and expect to actually get voted for, but uh, Bob drew the parallel with Hillary calling half of Trump's loyal base a basket of deplorables. Yeah, I suppose there's a there's a part of that. She was talking about the fact that Trump was deliberately stirring up hate, something that she saw as harmful to America in the future. There's a big difference between half of a group of people who are never going to vote for a Democrat woman and publicly declaring that this sizable 50% subsection are deplorables and all poor people are clowns. But... She still made a grievous diplomatic error, which is to slur the voters for her opponent rather than her opponent. And in real life, Trump voters started proudly calling themselves deplorables, although that's tapered off in the past three years. And in The Joker, the topical grab bag malcontents embrace the idea of being clowns. Thomas is painted as a much more canny politician than people like to think Hillary Clinton was. But it's a, is it's he a though? Reasonable we point. don't really get to see him. We don't. Like he look, tell you who he we, doesn't look like that much of a canny politician. I tell you who he doesn't come off like. Thomas, Thomas Wayne. Wayne. We took quite a fall, didn't we, Master Bruce? And why do we fall, Bruce? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. I get that we're seeing the Waynes from the other side of the fence. There's something really in that—a story to be told. But the Thomas in this is just a colossal prick and that leaves no room that he could have been a positive influence on Bruce whatsoever. <sighs> We've only got a sort of a vague idea of this man in our heads, but we can extrapolate the kind of man that he was from who Bruce and Alfred are. Exactly. You can read the measure of a man in the way his children turn out and the and the people that he's connected with and the the interactions that he has and this dude he seems like a crime boss who managed to walk into the wrong lobby he's like tom wilkinson, tom, Wils tom wilkinson in, uh, uh, in the dark night batman begins yeah carmine falcone carmine falcone yeah said your father begged like a dog <laughs> by the way Every time the Nolan trilogy popped into my head, I was like, oh, I'm going to a happy place now. <laughs> a place of darkness and richness and Morgan Freeman's dry humour and Michael Caine's dry humour and Christian Bale whispering and then Christian Bale going, swear to me! And, you know, it got worse. But uh, Christopher Nolan's eye and Wally Fister's framing and Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard's score... And that driving, driving pace that never let up. Why do we fall, sir? So that we can learn to pick ourselves up. Still haven't given up on me. Never. 
Yeah. And uh, Liam Neeson actually examining why having rich people in charge of the city is a bad idea. Fuck me, dude. We are. So- the first thing I said to you when we were done was, we are a long way from the Dark Knight. The elephant in the room is, of course, Heath Ledger. Hmm. That is a transcendent performance still. I know why you choose to have your little group therapy sessions in broad daylight. I know why you're afraid to go out at night. The Batman. See, Batman has shown Gotham your true colors, unfortunately. Dent, he's just the beginning. And and as for uh, the television's so-called plan, Batman has no jurisdiction. He'll find him and make him squeal. I know the squealers when I see them. And... What do you propose? It's simple. We uh, kill the Batman. (laughs) If it's so simple, why haven't you done it already? If you're good at something, never do it for free. How much you want? Uh, half. (laughs) You're crazy. Shivers. He owned every scene he was in. He overshadowed every other actor in that film. From the, like, just the idea of his Joker in that uh, opening bank heist. In LA, it's coming, it's coming, he's coming, he's coming, to the point where it's like, oh, you know, I, I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you a stranger. And then he unmasks himself. It's just shivers, shiver-inducing. Such a powerful performance. And following that was never going to be possible. And yet, people love this. So, ultimately, it kind of doesn't really matter what I think. Somebody on Twitter cornered me and said, Why do you miss Heath Ledger's Joker? Why do you miss that performance? He was mentally ill. He killed people. How is Joaquin Phoenix any different? First off, wow, what an intensely reductive way of regarding two performances. Just the things the characters did and were. And I'm not going to answer shit like that on Twitter. They were, by the way, someone I'd never spoken to before, so I had no problem ignoring them. Secondly, and most importantly, enough people adore Joaquin Phoenix's performance that it is, statistically speaking, fantastic acting. And people who deal only in the mathematics of film, surely that should be enough. I'm the anomaly. You think Joker fans seeking out the one person who stands out from the crowd by disagreeing with them and getting right up on their ass and saying, you should agree with us, is a little anti-Joker? A little ironic there? Then again, blindly seeking out and seeing hypocrisy where there is none is very on brand for Joker. But while Ledger's Joker fascinated me, Phoenix's repelled me. And we will definitely, I bet the farm on it, be seeing Joaquin Phoenix's Joker back again in some project or another, I would imagine repeatedly over the next decade. This is what we've got now. It's not like we can get Ledger back. This is very true. And he's better than Jared Leto. He is distinctly better than Jared Leto. Potentially because you could... It's really tough to be worse than Jared Leto's Joker. He's almost as obnoxious as Jim Carrey's Riddler. They said, you are my guests to this 
handsome hunka hunka. You belong to him now. The only worst jokers I can think of are the mediocre jokers. Brent Spiner in Young Justice springs to mind. Anyone remember him? Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt your regularly scheduled mayhem to bring you this important announcement from the In-Justice League. <laughs> we are responsible for the attacks on your cities. If you wish to save them, a ransom of 10 billion American dollars is required. Didn't think so, and that's because he was surrounded by other supervillains and ended up being kind of just a knife-wielding lackey. Anyway, Arthur dances for a fourth time, this time with his mother, who is tired and weakening. He puts her to bed and finds her latest unsent letter to Thomas Wayne, revealing that Arthur is Thomas's son? This revelation comes as a Luke Skywalker-level shock to Arthur. Lyra thought of that one. Nice. When no, it, Daddy, no! When it got to that bit in the letter, I sat back in my chair and internally I was like, are you fucking kidding me? We are not so different, you and I. Two sides of the Wayne coin. Sorry, coins of the... Coins of the other fellow's motif. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Anyway, he's furious and shouts at his mother for hiding this truth. Arthur goes to the front gates of Wayne Manor, where Bruce is wandering the gardens. The seven-year-old boy who would one day be the world's greatest detective, its greatest fighter, the richest man alive, the man who is unbeatable by anyone, and Gotham's only hope from becoming a cesspit where everyone is a criminal, stands there dumbly, allowing a strange man to shove two fistfuls of filthy fingers into his mouth through the gates. And he expresses no... Like, he's not weirded out by this. He doesn't even step away from him. He does nothing. I was like, where did you get this kid? The fucking bus station? It's like he hadn't been told you're going to be Bruce Wayne. (laughs) Not that like, how dare you not have a charismatic young man play Bruce Wayne? But it's like, this is how you... Okay, Okay, movie, you're the movie. The the what the fuck was coming thick and fast by this point, I can tell you. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Alfred, or some other unnamed butler, who's a total dick, he never got named, intervenes... Of course it's Alfred. But is it, though? It's gotta be Alfred! Was the commissioner... Oh, actually, you know, it wasn't Gordon at this point. Was it? Like, they never mentioned Gordon. I suppose he's he's in the sequel. Uh, Either way, this Alfred, in inverted commas, says that Arthur needs to get the fuck out of here and stop giving young Master Wayne a magic wand with flowers coming out the end of it. That's, like, his one rule. Arthur's attempt to reach out to his own half-brother and their mutual father thwarted, he goes home angrily. I thought that would work. You just That's the standard, isn't it? You go to the gates of a wealthy landowner and you put your fingers in his child's mouth. That's the thing, right? Again. Obviously the point is Arthur is way off the deep end and his points of reference he are just is. completely skewed. But again, you've got to indicate 
what it is that makes him think that this is an okay way to act. Because so much of what he does is nothing to do with mental illness or any neurological condition or brain injury he might have that causes him to laugh at inappropriate moments. It it may come down simply to the fact that he is ridiculously isolated and has never had an example of how a person behaves... I've just thought of a completely different version of the same scene. He's just walking along the uh, gates and he sees this kid who's imme- whose eyes immediately narrow. Who are you? And he says, you know, I'm just a visitor. And he's like, da 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 And then he does some, like, tricks. And then he's like, come on, kid, it's a joke. The young Bruce goes, it doesn't, it's not funny to me. Oh, I'll make you laugh someday. And just something <laughs> where it's like, finally, a challenge. That establishes a connection between the two of them. Instead, they got this gonk who sits there while he's like, I'm going to force your mouth up into a smile. It's the same thing in principle, mm. but it's so blunt, on the nose, lacking in spark. Mm. Lacking in all of those... Things and exchanges and interchanges of the, the Nolan films and, and fucking Lego Batman. Jesus. Oh, yeah? Well, there's only one problem. Who's going to defuse the bomb? It's got to be one or the other, Batman. Save the city or catch your greatest enemy. You can't do both. I'm sorry. What did you just say? You can't do both, I said. No, I mean the other thing. Save the city or catch your greatest enemy. You think you're my greatest enemy? Yes! You're obsessed with me. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are! Who else drives you to one-up them the way that I do? Bane. No, he doesn't. Superman. Superman's not a bad guy. Then I'd say that I don't currently have a bad guy. I am fighting a few different people. What? I like to fight around. Okay, look, I'm uh, fine with you fighting other people if you want to do that. But what we have is special. So when people ask you who's your number one bad guy, you say... Superman. Are you seriously saying that there is nothing, nothing special about our relationship? Whoa. Let me tell you something, Jay Bird. Batman doesn't do ships. What? As in relationships. There is no us. Batman and Joker are not a thing. I don't need you. I don't need anyone. You mean nothing to me. The Daily Mail Online says, It's way too terrifying. Joker viewers around the world walk out of movie theatres and urge cinemas to ban the ultra-violent film What the Fuck? Saying it glamorises gun crime and deals with mental health issues in a triggering way. Well, it ain't glamorising, I can tell you that much. (laughs) It's, hey, you two could shoot somebody in a filthy subway. <laughs> it's also not ultra-violent. There's one murder scene and three or four shootings, none of which really hit the heights of the average horror movie. Mm. But it's the Mail Online. A balanced view from that in yeah, a chimp's cock. <laughs> I'm just trying to find the IMDb page. I know. Yeah, when, there you go. He's credited as Alfred Pennyworth. Okay. Arthur disguises himself as an usher at a grand gilded cinema showing all of Gotham's 1%, the Charlie Chaplin film Modern Times from 1936. Arthur trails and corners Thomas Wayne in the men's room and says he's his and Penny's son. Thomas says that his mother Penny was insane and that he never had sex with her and she was confined to Arkham Asylum for a time. That he, Arthur, was in fact adopted and that he should stay the fuck away from young Bruce. Thomas then punches the insistent Arthur in the face and leaves. Which I have to say, although he is a dick and he is being 
painted as a dick in order to justify Arthur's uh, reaction to him is not an unreasonable response to somebody who's been creeping around your house and poking at your son. It's never really established fully whether uh, he did, in fact, cover this up or if she was, in fact, mentally ill. I mean, the, the, the diagnosis seemed to be that, but then at the same time, the diagnosis of her could have been paid off by Thomas Wayne. That We're, we're told both things and both truths exist at the same time, it, and that would have been quite a good way to send Arthur crazy. Yeah. The... With doubt. And it would still be a great hook with a hell of a lot of internet guys for whom lineage is really, really important. The um, the conflict involved in later on when he gets some documents relating to his mum's incarceration or her being in the, the uh, mental hospital, there is a, a certificate of adoption pertaining to him. Yeah, the adoption thing is, is correct. That could have been faked, though. Uh, yeah. There is also a photograph of his mother that has a note on the back saying, I love your smile, T.W., but she could have written that. We never see Thomas Wayne's handwriting. She could have written that to fuel her own So delusion. again, this inconsistency and not being able to really trust anyone and feeling like the, the 1% will lie to protect their asses and his mother may be pure or she may be insane and he doesn't know, that's Joker. We don't know. Mm. Play with that. But yeah, if... You remembered a ex-employee of yours who went to Arkham because she had a narcissistic personality disorder and was romantically obsessed with you. Then her son starts creeping around, sticking his fingers in your son's mouth. I think you could be forgiven for saying, stay the fuck away from my son. Mm, indeed. Although I will say this, because they do mention later on that uh, narcissistic personality disorder is one of the things that Penny was diagnosed with. There However, is... the film does not corroborate that with her older self. No, there is nothing about her behaviour at any point, including the earlier interview that you yeah. see her having. There is nothing about her behaviour that would suggest to me that narcissistic personality disorder would be on the table. No. Now, admittedly, I am not an expert. There may be people out there who can say, well, actually, yes, it does, but it certainly doesn't come across that way to me, which, again, brings me back to the uncomfortable feeling that Todd Phillips wants to use mental illness as a way of explaining things but not actually do the research to find out how mental illness might explain some of these things. Yeah. Would it be safe to say that Arthur appears to be developing narcissistic personality disorder in this film? Because the Joker, ha in most other versions of him, appears to have narcissistic personality disorder. Here's the thing. The sense, the sense of entitlement is a fundamental cornerstone of narcissistic personality disorder. But it comes along with an inflated sense of self, an aggrandised sense of self, which is... Uh, a way of, of overcompensating for a very fractured sense of self that occurs too young to really remember it. You, you start putting your coping mechanisms in and they are and, and aggressive coping mechanisms have come into play very, very early in your life. He is so down on himself up to such an advanced age that honestly, I don't think you could look at NPD for him because it's, it's developed so late in the day. Well, that could just be down to extremely lazy writing and not actually looking at the psychological profile of this man throughout his life. Yeah, entirely possible. 
but that's what I mean. There's there's so much that is thrown out there with a well because crazy. Crazy is not a binary state. No. At Arkham Asylum, Arthur negotiates and eventually steals the file on his mother, sprinting for the third time to a stairwell. He confirms that she was... And again, with his running, he is really giving it everything. He's running like crazy. Mm. He confirms that she, they, they make the most in the trailer of all of the running and all of the dancing. Yeah. And uh, it's accurate. It is accurate to the movie. You get a lot of that. Just they don't really show quite how much smoking there is in the film. <laughs> Because they couldn't. He'd have to be running with a cigarette in his mouth while dancing. Mm. He confirms that she was indeed diagnosed back then as delusional and that she had claimed Thomas Wayne had covered up their tryst and he had had her confined here. In his in a flashback, young Penny is confronted with the fact that she, and this were the specific words, stood by and did nothing while her then-boyfriend, not Thomas Wayne, different guy, beat her and also tied her son to a radiator and beat him. This led to head trauma for Arthur, and it has implied his mental condition, which is a lot more than just one thing. As we said, mm. Arthur becomes furious at this. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. There is. There's an awful lot. Pseudobulbar effect, or PBA, uh, emotional incontinence. It's a charming way of putting it. Yeah. Characterised by frequent involuntary bouts of crying, laughter or other emotional displays which are exaggerated or disconnected from the individual's actual emotional state. It's most commonly caused by brain injuries or neurological disorders that impact how the brain processes emotion. Uh, it seems like it's linked with Tourette's as well in that people yes. sort of yell stuff that they that don't was, actually want to yell. Yeah, I, I assumed that to be fair. According to the Mayo Clinic, people who have PBA will feel and experience emotion in much the same way as anybody else, but they are prone to expressing it in an exaggerated or inappropriate way, and these outbursts can last for several minutes. Laughter can often turn into tears, and because uncontrollably crying is such a common symptom of PBA, it's often mistaken for depression, which is actually also very common for sufferers of this condition. Phoenix's portrayal of a character battling mental illness, this is from an article on the internet, and his frustration at being denied the treatment he needs has been praised by critics and described as a timely commentary on the way many Americans struggle to access mental health services. However, ultimately, this nuanced characterization gives way to violence in a manner which some have said scapegoats mental illness. What could have made Joker a good film for 2019 would have been to better focus on the mental health issues it only briefly explores, writes... Herb Scribner, who believes that the film's descent into violence distracts from what could be a serious conversation about mental health. Mm, yeah. So and again, the uh, the thing about uncontrollably crying is often mistaken for depression, is often mistaken for, is a really major issue as far as mental illness is concerned because there are so many symptoms and so many outward expressions of behaviour that look very similar if you're looking at it from the outside, but are motivated by a very different internal state. So, like, you've got mood disorders and personality disorders and emotional regulation uh, that can become an issue with even things like uh, autism and ADHD. There's so many things that could be lots of different stuff and i i get that in the early 80s they probably wouldn't have had any way of of picking this stuff apart so that much is, is but there's no reason you couldn't accurate. have a decent doctor 
explain to some degree the spectrum. Well, this is the thing. If he's on seven different types of medication, they've been prescribed for something. So what's he take? Is it is it muscle relaxants to try and stop him laughing? Is it painkillers because the constantly laughing gives him headaches? Penny collapses and is taken to hospital. I've worked around with time here just so I can conflate some of the threads into sections because a lot of this happens and then a thread is left dangling and then it gets picked up. Mm. And a lot of the time the thread is just left dangling. Yeah, the pacing is not good. There were such long stretches of this where I was so bored. I kept looking. After after the hour and 20 minute mark, I kept looking at my watch and going, more time must have passed, surely. Mm. And we, it crept up. When we got to the end and you pointed out it had only been two hours, I just, I couldn't believe it. It felt like I'd been sat there for at least three and a half. Somebody I trust on Twitter said, this felt like a 45 minute movie. I'm like, oh fuck, I can't imagine what a three hour movie would be like. See, my interpretation of that was he had the material for a 45 minute movie and then he padded it for an hour and a quarter. The rest is laughing, smoking, <laughs> yep. running and Slow dancing. Slow motion dancing, yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, this uh, his mother being taken to hospital makes Arthur very upset, but because he is also upset by the Arkham file, he murders his mother in her hospital bed, smothering her with a pillow, and there was a girl behind us who went, oh, God, no. And I thought, this is the point where you lose all the girlfriends. They're obviously not all the girlfriends. Hashtag not Some all girlfriends. Some of them have checked out long before this. Smothering your own frail old mother and not being all that bothered about it is a... Very strong flavour. This bit, by the way, was the next bit that really made me take a step down into... Ugh. Yeah. He goes to Sophie's apartment and she returns from reading to her daughter, a bedtime story, to find a strange man on her couch glowering Kubrick style. She is terrified as it transpires they have never really spoken. It is left unclear as to whether Arthur murders her or her child or both or neither. Probably not just her child, but it feels like if he just murdered her, there'd be some loose ends to deal with. Mm. So either he murders them both or he doesn't murder either of them and she doesn't call the police on him. Frankly, feels like he killed them. Mm. It didn't occur to me until you suggested it later, but that... It could have been that that bit was just too subtle. I think what... <laughs> the, the film was just too subtle. No, 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 just this little bit. That... More specifically, it feels like Todd Phillips was unconcerned with soothing that particular worry. Mm, well, indeed. But the... this Obviously, soothing is not a thing that you're going to get in a Joker film, but just, like, establishing strongly either way. Mm. Again, maybe... Is she Schrodinger's potential girlfriend the thing is there is a subtlety to the way this scene starts the fact that she comes in and says you're Arthur aren't you it, it, it's there is there is conveyed in their uh, very separated interaction that she doesn't really know him that all the mm. um, the dates and hugs and kisses and everything that, that have been in his head prior to this have just been in his head or more and specifically that Zazie Beetz is a fantastic actress and was going to act the shit out of that scene she's brilliant and needed way more time um, but, but that the, was the point he didn't know her we weren't going to get more time with her and then anything out of her mouth that was imagined and fantasised by him would have been asinine anyway yeah but then you after that kind of quite subtle introduction to the scene you then get a <gasps> And zoom in on this bit in his head and it shows you him with her and then flashes to him on his own. It's and just it's him in all these. Exactly. But why do you need that? How, if to you, explain to the audience. If you, if you, why does it need... 
need to be made that Dude, I have it on good authority that literally 100% of this audience has seen Fight Club. Yeah, Fight Club <laughs> and... You know, for the, those of those who haven't seen Fight Club but are raving about how much this is like King of Comedy, there's loads of stuff in that about him fantasizing about things, and and you've it's not quite clear whether it's real or well, not. Well, just in case you didn't catch it through the nuanced back and forth. Mm. So anyway, Arthur prepares for his guest spot on the Murray Franklin show, painting his face white and dyeing his hair green. He dances for the fifth time, now in slow motion, happy with his green hair. He has run out of medication and is now entirely unmedicated. Two ex-work colleagues come round. One of them, Randall, asks about the gun he let him borrow. Remember that? Several hours ago? And then claimed no knowledge of when Arthur shot three men with it. Just to backtrack a little bit, because I had a real issue with that scene. Mm -hmm. When they come back to him clearing out his locker... And they've literally just been talking about the news bit about the guy in the clown face who shot people on the train. Mm -hmm. They've literally just been talking about it. Then they cut to a completely unconnected part of the conversation where their colleague, who they all think is nuts, has just been fired for having a gun. And none of them are able to put two and two together. Look, if the detectives can't work it out, I don't think subcontracted clowns who hold signs can. Seriously. Honestly, they, they would surely, at least a handful of people in that room would be like looking at him going... You, will Maybe. <laughs> anyway, in revenge, Arthur stabs his colleague in the neck with a pair of scissors and smashes his head against the wall, terrifying his other ex-colleague, Gary, whom Arthur lets go because Gary was the only person who was ever nice to him. For no story-related reason, Gary is of short stature, which would have been nice inclusion if no one had ever actually made a joke about it apart from Randall, who was a shit. Mm. If Gary had actually been actively nice to him at some point, it might have kind of underpinned a little element of, you know what, when other people are mean to us, we need to stick together. Um, But most of the time, Gary just doesn't, join in with the teasing because he got teased himself yeah the director of the hangover trilogy at this point does a dark joke at the expense of gary and the actor playing gary when he cannot reach the door handle to escape our audience laughed because they needed to laugh like drains because as you said yeah it was desperately needed at that point everybody felt something that we can just have a little bit of a tension burst at everybody was on edge But not in that kind of, oh, this is such a powerful film, but in that kind of, uh, like everyone's feet were sticky and there was a horrible smell in the air. All the animals come out at night. Whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, dopers, junkies. Sick, venal. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. Yeah, Travis didn't particularly like sex workers or the LGBTQ community. Still, it's a total classic. Like, it, like the whole cinema had been flooded with garbage. And it's like everyone felt like, ugh, this ugh. Is, And it's right. like, oh, that's a really powerful film, isn't it? Not really. One of the things that I wrote in my notes was, it so impressively recreates the experience of lying in a bathtub of slime that smells like sewage. But why would I want to do that? 
Here's a clip from a TV show no one remembers that has a lot of problems of its own now, from the 1990s, called Game On. It's about a guy who stays in his apartment all the time and fashions himself after Travis Bickle and Scarface and the man with no name and the godfather and whoever's on the posters of the walls of a male student's room. And he's agoraphobic, and I totally relate, but this is him describing just trying to step outside and it's kind of how I felt while watching Joker. How am I doing? You're doing fine. Good game. This what's it called again? Aversion therapy. Yeah, cool. Get some chicks around, play it with them. We'd soon have them out of their knickers, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, final round. You have to imagine yourself going out of the flat alone at night. Now, what's the worst-case scenario you can envisage? Mm. Just let your imagination go. You might find it's not so bad as you think. You must be joking, mate. Cop this, right? I'm walking along this pavement and it's all slimy and I can't keep my balance because the skunk pussies are biting at my toes <laughs> and the jism monkeys and the slime surfers are dropping down their glittering ropes of mucus all over my face and hair, mate and I'm all sticky I'm all slimed up to the eyeballs, man and um, there's all this like black stuff oozing up between the cracks in the pavement and uh, I realise my feet are sinking in and the whole pavement is just black slime just a great pus filled swamp you know sucking me down and um, I can't breathe now yeah. my mouth and nose they're all sort of choked up with this um, green stuff and then I realise what all the slime is it's made up of rotting bodies and even though they're rotting, some of them are still alive. And this one reaches out its stinking, rotting talons and plunges them into my eyeballs. And I'm blind, man! I'm blind and drowning in filthy black pus. How was that? Fine. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> Anyone fancy coming out for a drink? <gasps> anyway, energised by his most recent few murders, dressed in full Joker regalia, including his trademark, checks notes, red suit, and looking forward to <laughs> committing suicide on Murray Franklin's show in order to show the whole world that he exists, he plans to put the gun in his mouth and pull the trigger, Arthur dances... A sixth time, again in slow motion, to Rock and Roll Part 2 by disgraced pedophile glam rocker Gary Glitter. Reasons? Reasons, Todd Phillips. Reasons okay. why this song. Okay, I can think of a reason why this song. And it goes along with the theory that the Joker is not intended to be in any way sympathetic or aspirational at all. That you are meant to think that he is a shitbag from start to finish. The explosion of Joaquin Phoenix Joker avatars over the past few weeks and months would suggest otherwise. Anyway, he dances down some steps and Gotham's only two detectives, both of whom are inept, give chase. Arthur sprints away a fourth time, getting hit by a taxi this time. Uninjured, he proceeds to a train packed with clowns on their way to a big demonstration against authority. The clowns beat down the cops, sending them to the hospital, and Arthur escapes, further emboldened and walking in slow motion, looking thoroughly pissed off. 
Don't identify with this guy. Don't think he's cool. By the way, here's how fucking cool he is. It is possible Todd Phillips doesn't know about Gary Glitter. Now, backstage on the Murray Franklin Show, producer Mark Marin asks Arthur to be professional. Arthur asks Murray to introduce him as Joker. He seems pleased to meet uh, Robert De Niro. He dances for a seventh time, again in slow motion, as the curtain rolls back. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence? (sighs) I remember Jack Nicholson danced once or twice, and this guy's... Do you know how Pennywise says, I'm Pennywise, the dancing clown? He dances once, and they had to write a scene where he does it. Joker should be called Arthur the Dancing Clown. Not Joker. He does dancing the way that Heath Ledger did the sort of teeth licking thing. He was doing that backstage when he was just trying to, you know, get into character, and Chris Nolan went, wait, what are you doing there? I'm just, you know, getting my mouth ready for this. And he was like, that's really fucking freaky. Can you do that? On camera, yeah, sure. And obviously, Joaquin Phoenix to get into Joker gear was dancing in slow motion. And clearly, Todd Phillips went, "That's fucking weird. Do that eight times in this movie. I will put it in slow motion." I feel like you could get Paulie Shaw dancing in slow motion to this music, <laughs> and people would go, "Wow, that is an extraordinary performance." Gotta work on my dance moves, bud. Because, I mean, ultimately, like, power and intensity aren't really meaningful if you're not engaged. And with intensity. Okay? Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said quite a bit more than that. Joaquin Phoenix has done several performances that I would not only agree are powerful, but really got to me. Walk the Line, Her, and Parenthood. I was infinitely more engaged with Gary, a 13-year-old boy on the phone to his absent father, for 90 seconds of Parenthood than the entirety of Joker. We'll do a show on Parenthood at some point. It's the opposite of this. Anyway, he kisses an elderly female guest on the lips. That's Dr. Ruth. Uh, that was actually in The Dark Knight Returns. He, as in the original Frank Miller comic. Yep. And uh, he sits down beside Murray, who is creeped out by him, but hiding it well. But he's introduced as Joker, and he has all the spotlights on him. Now, remember, folks, at this point, he is still absolutely intending to shoot himself on camera and go, you know... You want to see something really funny? Oh, oh God. Show the world something uh, horrific and astonishing and just prove that he exists even for just one moment. Arthur seems nervous and like he's trying too hard. Uh, this is why, where I, I was just really thinking about Ledger's Joker again. Mm-hmm. Because this is the point where Arthur has become Joker. I mean, like, obviously, there's a, it's the Darth Vader thing. Like, when does he really go over the edge? But if it's going to be at any point, it's got to be here, where he stops being nervous and just kind of stretches his legs out, changes his body posture, mm. and owns the scene and slowly moves his hands behind his head and just yeah. leans back and... Suddenly, the Joker is born before you. Mm. The whole point being that the makeup and the hair and the suit and the cameras and the audience give him an opportunity to be the person he has always wanted to be and has never been able to be. But instead, if you look at his posture, he's still just Arthur. He's still just... (laughs) Yeah. And he's being swallowed by this chair. I don't know if it was Philip's intention or Joaquin Phoenix's intention in the performance, but this Joker just looks like a sad little twat 
sat there Very going, I've got so much to say, a- so much to say, <laughs> to say to, to you, you people, you think you, with all your society and... Bob and uh, Chris Chipman talked about this. Do you know, Sharon, that we live in a society? Do we? We do (gasps) live in a society. And it is Joker's job to tell us and remind us that we live in a society. That tells us what to do. Now, the society does. It tells us what to do. It tells society. You people out there Mm. decide what is right and wrong. What's funny and not funny. What is funny and not funny. Mm -hmm. And as Todd Phillips said, because of woke comedy, now we're being told that what was funny before now isn't funny. It's almost as if comedy evolves Mm. and people can't gatekeep what's funny and what's not. But audiences are absolutely within their own rights to go, yeah, nope. Yeah, um, Todd, you can't throw a tantrum just because people aren't laughing at your shit jokes. Yeah. To paraphrase a statement about rock and roll on our episode on the wonderful Sing Street, comedy takes risk. You risk being ridiculed. You go out there naked in front of the stage. You say your stuff. If people boo the shit out of you, that is the wages of being a comedian. You risk that all the time. I am as passingly funny as I am because I spent my whole life absorbing the comedy of writers and stand-up comedians, working out which bits were just, you know, I'm not going to cover that sort of stuff. I'm not going to take that particular approach to these particular people. I'm just going to refine that shit. Refining that shit is what a good comedian should do. Understanding that comedy is alive. And it doesn't belong to you. You put it out there. People on Twitter can now come up with stuff that's way funnier than the average stand-up comedian, especially in the 80s. Just off the top of their heads, because now we live in a place where timing is almost more important on Twitter. Because if you come up with a funny thing to say to someone on Twitter, and it's a day later, you are shit out of luck, Sonny Jim. So the Joker says, knock, knock, who's there? It's the police, madam, your son is dead. That's... Obviously not a joke. It is just something horrible to say couched in the form of a punchline-free joke. And it becomes apparent at this point, if you think about this film, why was he aspiring to be a stand-up comedian when he has no material? He's never funny, and honestly, a lot of versions of Joker aren't funny, which is kind of the point. But he doesn't even have an act. At least Pupkin in King of Comedy had a routine. It wasn't funny, but he had it. But like everyone else, I grew up in large part thanks to my mother. If she were only here today, I'd say, Hey, Mom, what are you doing here? You've been dead for nine years. (laughs) But seriously, you should have seen my mother. She was wonderful. Blonde, beautiful, intelligent, alcoholic. We used to drink milk together after school. Mine was homogenized. Hers was loaded. (laughs) Once they picked her up for speeding, they clocked her doing 50. All right, but in our garage? He thought it was funny. At the end of King of Comedy, Rupert Pupkin manages, you know, to become famous. Got a whole kind of, you know, about to be king for a day, then schmuck for a lifetime. And the film ends with this montage in which this guy who's basically a kidnapper and has kidnapped his way onto television is accepted by the media and is suddenly surrounded by this girl of applause. And I, I felt, watching Robert De Niro's character in Joker, that that's what he would have turned into. He would have turned into somebody who was smug and smarmy because the whole point about King of Comedy is that Rupert Pupkin is not heroic. Rupert Pupkin is not lovable 
likable or likable. It's not that he's misunderstood. It's not that he's a great talent who just needs to... It's that. That is a story which is absolutely about the way in which the media takes something and turns it into something else, making heroes of villains. I think, by and large, I prefer airheads. Man, you got a ton of hot CDs here, and I never hear this stuff. Why don't you ever play these guys? That's Milo's call. Why don't we play him, Milo? Listen, if they're so hot, how come they're not tearing up the charts, babe? Because you never play them, babe. You suck. But I guess that's the form of the Joker. He would never have got the laughs. His frames of reference are too twisted for the average person. And to that end, I, I kind of feel like I wanted to see a lengthy scene where he delivers what he feels is his routine and just the audience fucking hates it. We get, obviously, flashes of that, but it, it, nothing nothing that goes into any detail or depth. So the Joker turns it outwards and turns their rejection of him into his rejection of them. Lectures the entire audience to that effect, tells them he was the one who shot those Wall Street guys on the train. And so all that adulation for this vigilante all now passes to him and he undergoes kind of a change we don't really see it physically we don't really feel it psychologically but apparently that happens because he decides he's not going to kill himself the po- I, I think for me the point where the change was apparent was there's a there's a camera shift you've got a shot of him from the audience's perspective and it's sort of middle distance and his makeup seems very prominent it looks much um, much neater and almost more like the masks that everybody's wearing later on. Yeah. You see the makeup more than you see Arthur. And he looks a little bit more anonymous as well. Then the camera cuts to a shot over Murray's shoulder. You get the side of his face. You get the side of Arthur's face. I believe that's the artwork for this episode. Okay. but Looking reproachful. You can, exactly. As he says, how dare you make fun of me on your TV show where all you do is make fun of people. But now, because it's closer up, you can see there's gaps in the makeup and you can see his skin underneath and you've got jawline and stubble and, and elements of him that are, are the human, not the character face. It could just be that it was two takes and mm. they looked different. But I, I thought that was a successful way of presenting that there is a shift in uh, Arthur's perception of what's going on around him at that point. So this would appear, like I said, to be the turning point. Mm. Uh, He's becoming more integrated with the Joker. Although we don't really see him talking as the Joker. And I think I, I sat through this whole thing. You know, again, like episode three, you wait for Hayden Christensen to become Darth Vader and it never really happens. But the point with that is that Terrible though that performance might be, you get flashes throughout of the Darth Vader within. You get little bits of the Anakin Skywalker that's very angry and frustrated. And so eventually when that comes out of him, you at least know it was there all along. There, There doesn't really... You don't see any hints of the Joker in Arthur... Because... Up to that point. The Joker, his version of the Joker would appear to be just a kind of heightened version of Arthur. Exactly. So it's not but but that's the thing. It's not a an internalized angry aggressive psychotic let's kill everybody character that emerges from him. No. It's It's Arthur in makeup. It's Arthur in makeup doing something that he doesn't really seem particularly driven to do. It feels like an accident, an afterthought. Anyway, Murray is taken aback with the revelation of the gun, but to his credit, continues to hold Arthur's attention, asking him why he's doing this. 
Arthur screams that if society treats a mentally ill loner with contempt, they get just what they deserve. He then shoots Murray dead and is arrested. Society treats mentally ill loners with contempt all the fucking time. A really high percentage of them manage to get through life without shooting anybody. You pointed out a while back that Joaquin Phoenix seems to play this kind of guy all the time. Yeah. He's lonely as fuck in her. Absolutely. Doesn't kill anyone. I, I would say there is even a good streak of this through Commodus. Yeah. At eat, like When Commodus smothers his lone surviving parent, he seems to really be broken up about it. It feels like that's something that haunts him. The whole movie is about him trying to eliminate Maximus the living embodiment of his own patricidal guilt. A good man he knows he'll never be. A nemesis, if you will. But as for Arthur, he never thinks about his mother again after that moment. He just puts her from his mind and just becomes Joker. Mm. Doesn't really talk about it. We have to interpret... The whole thing is interpretive dance. You have to interpret his, his internal journey through his... Rhythmic, undulating, fluctuating movements in slow motion. That and his pelvic thrust is precisely what I was trying to do. <laughs> but there was no indication of the of of an intentional element to it that would help me string those things together. One element that I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into this film, but he gets to shaking his booty and thrusting his pelvis on the steps when he becomes Joker. And I believe this is Todd Phillips saying to us that it's the A police car drives him through the streets of Gotham, which is full of rioting people and clowns. And he leans against the window, smiling at the carnage on the streets. And you went, oh, fucking hell. You were, like, furious at this point. because um, I figured it out a moment before you reacted. It's Ledger's Joker driving through Gotham in a stolen police car and leaning out the window. The way that was framed and set up when he leaned against the window and started to grin... My mind basically went, okay, we're just going to lay Heath Ledger over this one. Let's just sit and watch Heath Ledger for a bit. Nearby, the Wayne family emerge from the 1981 film Zorro the Gay Blade and walk straight into Crime Alley. A mask-wearing clown follows them and, inspired by Arthur on TV, shouts, you get just what you deserve, shoots Thomas and Martha, leaving Bruce to become Batman. We've seen this now in four Batman films. Tim Burton's Batman. Mm -hmm. Batman begins by Christopher Nolan. Mm -hmm. Zack Snyder's Batman v Superman. Mm -hmm. And this, Nolan nailed it, and Snyder's was totally perfunctory, just to remind us about the name Martha. But compared to this, which apparently look, feels like reshoot material that they added at the end to just sort of make it possible to get a sequel and go, oh yeah, by the way, Bruce Wayne's parents got killed, so like he's going to become Batman. Yeah, we know. But I remember saying like we don't like don't play the death of the Waynes before we saw Batman v Superman, and then that actually happened again. And it's like for fuck's sake, we did not need to see this. We really didn't need to see it this time. This is the worst of the four. It's so fucking perfunctory, 
and it's horribly staged and just over like that and it just feels like okay if nothing else you don't even realize while doing this shit that's gonna create a completely different batman as is having a father like this Thomas Wayne. And the early on in the film, when we first started to get a, a, an indication of the kind of man that this Thomas Wayne was, it did actually pop into my head. If they do the alleyway scene, he is going to react in a very different way than the Thomas Waynes that we've seen over and over and over again reacting to this. But they also, the other things that I really, this was the final step down into the pit of will you fuck off with this movie for me? And it's it, it's partly that, it's partly the fact that um, they are again filching from Burton's Batman by implying that Joker, the Joker had a has heavy hand in any the involvement in the death of Batman's parents. Yeah. Um, but the thing that really killed this scene for me, the, the thing that absolutely took the fucking cake. Okay. Right. Hang on. Pulls up popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it's a tiny thing and I'm going to say it and everybody's going to be like, oh, is that all? But, right. No, I agree with you on this. Okay. So the guy in the clown mask comes into the alleyway and Thomas Wayne steps forward and puts his arm in front of his wife and child. Yeah, so far so good. And the guy in the clown mask shoots Thomas Wayne. And Martha Wayne's response is this. Ah! And she leans in over her husband and screams. And then she stops screaming and she stands back up and she calmly takes an upright standing position and waits to receive her own bullet. That is the most appalling death scene, shooting scene Somebody remembering that they're in a film scene, I have Again, witnessed. just in terms of blocking, Thomas Wayne stands in front of Martha Wayne to shield her, gets shot. Martha Wayne, terrified at this, picks herself back up and stands right in front of Bruce to shield him, making Bruce the shield in front of Gotham. Mm -hmm. The, she gives him the example. He, his father gives the example. <laughs> but this is only for if you're thinking about what you're doing. And Todd Phillips isn't. I'm giving you pearls here, kid. <laughs> you win the podcast. <laughs> Honestly, this made the Zack Snyder way of doing it. The pornographic, like, gun underneath the pearls. Put my cock gun in your mouth, Martha. Oh, boom! In slow motion. The jizz pearls go everywhere. That's better than this, because at least you then get a, Hans, a mournful Hans Zimmer score going dun, 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 dun. At least you feel sad, as opposed to, oh for fuck's sake. At least it felt like he'd done it on purpose. This felt like just somebody, like this was some people messing around backstage and Phillips went, oh yeah, that looks good. No, Todd, it doesn't. You filmed the murder of the Waynes again? I don't understand, did you trip? <laughs> Anyway, oh. uh, folks, we started this out trying our level best to give it the benefit of the doubt. We did not want to go into this one with, we were predisposed to hate the Joker film. I went in there going, I don't want to hate this because all it does is burn a peptic ulcer hole in my stomach. I want to like it for fuck's sake. What the first half hour, I was genuinely not enjoying it exactly, but genuinely feeling like, yeah, you I were genuinely see why this tolerating the movie. I was genuinely tolerating it. It was totally happening. But by were... this point, I was just like, fuck it, I want to go home. <laughs> Me too. Oh. 
An ambulance driven by a man in a clown mask rams into Arthur's police car. He is gently removed from the wreckage and borne aloft like the Messiah. This is the point where you said it's like the penguin. Of all the Batman references that I expected to see in this movie, the penguins carrying... Oswald Cobblepot down into the sewer was not one of them. But again, it's got that same Tim Burton sensibility of, oh, I'm in love with my villain. And it's like, no, he's a fucking child murderer. And a pervert. And we will snatch them, carry them into the sewer, and toss them into a deep, dark, watery grave. Penguin? Um, I mean, killing sleeping children. Isn't that a little, uh... So he gets up, turns to the crowd of rioters in clown masks, and Arthur paints his face into a smile with the blood from his nose, and, you guessed it folks, dances in slow motion for the eighth time. Just dancing before his adoring audience whom he has made happy. Do you get it? I know. I got it. I got the concept. I know you really didn't like this scene. This bit was the one bit from the end that I actually started to... um, Started to... It was very brief and it passed very quickly. But this was the one bit where I actually felt like there was some semblance of connection with Arthur as a human being that he stands on the car and turns to his audience and basks in their adoration and thinks that this is what he wants. And there was a a sadness to it for me and a a sense of he doesn't really understand what they're worshipping him for, that he thinks that he's brought them some semblance of joy and happiness rather than violence and and aggression, which, you know, they're all stood there with flipping tiki torches and whatnot. I think I saw a pitchfork. Tiki torches and whatnot. (laughs) I saw a pitchfork in there somewhere. But but that, that sort of being this... He's an accidental cult leader at this point. And if you play that angle right, there is a deep sadness in that. That this is the this is not the kind of love that will fill that void. I'd like to fill her, fill her void. void. Sorry. Um God. And and then it just I can't take her anywhere. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was all gone. But that, just that bit. Okay. That one bit was on my list of things that I liked about this. It does also rather answer that nagging doubt about the henchman agent. Uh, Like, after the dancing, he could go, right, so who wants to be henchman then? Because he's got this giant gang of Joker clown boys Mm, there. But how... But what the fuck, like, Bruce is seven. It's going to be a long time. It's going to be a while, yeah. But how does somebody go from being completely isolated, living in an apartment with their mother, and then being the only person that they really interact with ever, and having no friends, Mm -hmm. and having no people that you, you really sort of feel comfortable with, to then standing in front of a mass crowd of people who mostly look like you... There's got to be a sheer sense of terrified overwhelm. 
involved in that. And again, that was kind of part of what I was feeling for him at that point. And I think I possibly responded to it a little bit more than I would have done naturally because this was what I had desperately been searching for throughout the whole film. Give me something that will let me feel some connection with who this man is and how he feels. One more thing about Arthur's pivot on TV from his original plan to what he ultimately did reminded me of a moment from Wes Craven's Scream. She was never attacked. I think she made it all up. How did she lie about that? For attention, the girl has some serious issues. What if she did it? What if Sydney killed Casey and Steve? Why would she do that? Maybe she had the hots for Steve and killed them both in each other's range. What would Sydney want with Steve? She's her own bubble butt boyfriend, Billy. Maybe she's a slut, just like her mother. You're evil. Please, the common fact. Her mother was a tramp. She watched her mom get butchered. And it fucked her up royally. Think about it. Her mother's death leaves her disturbed and hostile in a cruel and inhumane world. She's delusional. Where's God? Etc. Completely suicidal. One day she snaps. She wants to kill herself, but she realizes that teen suicide is out this year, and homicide is a much healthier therapeutic expression. Where do you get this shit? Ricky Bay. Oh, you are pathetic. And that appears to be the philosophy of Arthur the Dancing Clown, the words of a mean high schooler. In summation, this was a film that didn't need to be made, for an audience nonetheless desperate to see it, a huge amount of whom seemed very satisfied with the results, about a character symbolic of chaos, who exists to contrast the embodiment of order, who was absent, and whose key defining characteristic is that we don't know who he is or where he came from. I mean, what is it with you? What made you what you are? Girlfriend killed by the mob, maybe? Brother carved up by some mugger? Something like that, I bet. Something like that. Something like that happened to me, you know. I'm not exactly sure what it was. Sometimes I remember it one way, sometimes another. If I'm going to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. (laughs) The only way they can mitigate this character-destroying factor is to now do two more films, also Origins of Joker, also called Joker. In this, he's nobody's arch nemesis and there's nothing mysterious or powerful about him, to me. He's a clown who gets fired and murders six people. The director proudly stated that, and I quote, Joker is a real movie disguised as a comic book film, which renders the following movies and every scrap of subtext we've spent years uncovering and interpreting on our show no longer real. Iron Man, Avengers, The Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Civil War, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, X-Men First Class, Deadpool, Logan, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Shazam, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, or Enter the Spider-Verse. 
Apologies to all the men and women who made them and thought they were being filmmakers, but luckily the director of Old School, Road Trip, The Hangover, The Hangover 2, The Hangover 3, Due Date, and Starsky and Hutch has the integrity and authenticity of cinema covered. It's the language employed here, the word real. When people say things are real or not, it's very difficult to avoid coming off like a gatekeeper. If I've ever done that myself, I regret it. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. But despite wanting to like this, I have to face facts and admit it wasn't ever going to be likely that a Joker film would be made that I loved. See, I grew cold to the Joker in mid-2012 when I made The Killing Joke audio drama. It was a horrible headspace to be in as Joker for that and for Batman Breakdown. If Heath Ledger had never played the Joker, never given us that fantastic performance, he might still be alive today. And nothing is worth losing that. It's a ghoulish mind to inhabit. I never want to laugh that hard again, and I think I may have injured my voice and maybe my brain. This was, of course, exacerbated a whole bunch by irate Joker fans in the YouTube comments section. But this also coincided at the same time with the shooting in Aurora by a shithead who claimed to be the Joker. Joker is a measurably dangerous role in both directions. And that made me feel seven years ago that this guy needs a serious update. And this version of him may not be the version our world needs, but it might be the version we now deserve. there is still hope on the horizon. And I call that hope Harley. The Joker and I broke up. I wanted a fresh start. But it turns out I wasn't the only Damon Gotham looking for emancipation. A big thank you to our patrons this week and those in the top tier get a verbal high five. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Daniel Salguero, he's new, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dachler, and Lorraine Chisholm. You are a vicious bastard, retaliant. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> And that is all from us. We will be back soon with a film we engaged with a whole lot more than Joker, and that is Zombieland, just in time for the sequel. Not long after that, we are tackling another absolute sacred cow of cinema. 
To all those of you who've asked us for years to do a Kubrick film, careful what you wish for, because we are doing The Shining. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. Out. God damn it. Well, what are you waiting for? Kick the hell out of me and get your standing ovation. Come on! No, not this time. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want either of us to end up killing the other. But we're running out of alternatives. Perhaps it all hinges on tonight. I don't know what it was that bent your life out of shape, but maybe... I've been there too. Maybe we could work together. I could rehabilitate you. You don't need to be alone. We don't have to kill each other. Let me help you. I'm sorry, but no. No. It's far too late for that. You know, it's funny. This reminds me of a joke. See, there were two guys locked in a lunatic asylum. And one night, one night they decided they didn't like that anymore. They decided to escape. So they made it up to the roof, and there, just across this narrow gap, they see rooftops stretching across town, stretching to freedom. Now, the first guy, he jumps right across no problem, but his friend, oh, no way, he's afraid of falling. So the first guy, he has an idea. He says, hey, I got this flashlight with me. I'll shine it across the gap between the buildings and you can walk across the beam and join me. But the second guy says, what do you think I am, crazy? You just turn it off when I'm halfway across. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) excuse me. Smile, though your heart is aching Smile, even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky You'll get by if you smile Through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun come shining through for you Light up your face with gladness high Every trace of sadness Although a tear May be ever so near That's the time You must keep on trying Smile What's the use of crying You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you just smile Smile, though your heart is aching Smile, 